And thanks, Neil. Um, and, and just uh, if I could ask you to take a note here, because you've brought this up many times and you still don't have it right. That was a touchdown. <laughs> so he was all right. <laughs> no, it's, it's really, uh, thank you all so much for um, your warm hospitality toward us and letting uh, me and Patricia spend a few days with you all. Um, I, I, as, as, as the music was going on, I was thinking a, a couple of things. One was, I, it's like, it's as clear as a bell to me when I was sitting in your shoes. It feels like I'd just gotten off the boat from Japan, had just come to Christ, had just attended my first day of class at the University of Texas, and then some, some weeks, some months later, came to a conference like this. And <clears throat> because my background uh, didn't have any uh, religion or faith based in it, it was an extraordinary thing for me because it was like, you know, I didn't know what anybody was singing. I didn't know what anybody was saying. You know, and I didn't get it. But, but what I did get, in a sense, was, was two things. One was God was calling me. And I think that t this week, I want all of you all to understand that God is calling each of you to himself. And maybe some of you have just begun that journey, and he's asking you to take that next step toward himself. For others of you that have known him a while, he's calling you to keep taking the steps and draw closer to him. And then the, and then the second part of the calling was God is calling you to a purpose in this world, which we're going to be, really be talking about these next messages. When I, when I arrived at the University of Texas uh, in that fall, the United States was just exploding with protest and violence in, in protest to the Vietnam War, and, and all these other things that were going on. And it wasn't unusual for that first semester for our classes to be disrupted by agitators and demonstrators just taking over the classes. And it was in the middle of that that I really began to see that God has called, had called me to a purpose in this generation to say there is an alternative in this world. There is an alternative answer that the world really needs and that all these other answers don't fix the world. Because if we can't change the heart of a person, we can't change the world. And that started me on that journey toward Christ at that, uh, in, in terms of my purpose in Christ. And so you all are here today because God is calling you first to himself, but he's also calling you for a place as his emissaries, as his agents of grace, as, as a song was saying earlier, for this place and time. And, and the world may seem totally crazy, but you're here for a purpose, and God has chosen you for an assignment at this point in time in history, to know him and to make him known. And hopefully we can unpack that. And then as David was kind of leading us in the reflection piece, you were echoing something that was exactly in my mind as we were thinking about it, because on the drive up here, I was thinking, how is God going to speak to us? And maybe if you've come to an event like this for the first time, you're thinking, I might hear something from a speaker or something like that. And I want to disabuse you of that. God is the one who's going to speak. And he may use my words or Patricia's words or some of the other leaders in workshops. But God is going to be speaking to you through the encounters that you have with people, at your break times, at meals, after hours. And, and there's, no, there's no encounter that you're going to have this weekend that's accidental. And so I would urge you to be present in every conversation, 
and in every session, and especially in these times alone with God, when it's just you and him in the quietness of your thoughts as he speaks to you through his scriptures and through the moving in your heart of his spirit. So let me just pray one more time, and then let's dive in and ask God. And let me, rather than me pray, why don't we just, in small groups of twos and threes here, just pray and ask God to speak to us throughout this weekend, okay? And then I'll just kind of transition us here. But just give, us, give yourselves a couple of minutes to pray. And so now, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We still all the voices in our hearts to listen to you. And we just pray that whether we've never heard you before or we've heard you before, that today and the days to come, we're present in front of you to hear you and to, and to listen to your words of wisdom, to listen to your grace to us, and to let you wrap us up with your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Patricia and I left the campus ministry um, after you know, almost a decade and a half of working with students. And one of the, one of the compelling reasons besides, you know, many, um, besides some family issues and things like that was I really felt like at that point in time was God was saying, we have to do a better job of preparing those that come to Christ in our campuses to take their place in the world beyond. And I felt like I had lost touch with what life was like in the world beyond. And, it, and, and again, it just that was, that's me, and it's not saying anything about you know, people that serve and minister on the campus staff because that's incredibly valuable. But if we're looking at discipleship, if we're looking at following Christ, we have to view it in the context of the whole life. And little did we know that in, in the years after that, God would take us through some of the most trying and challenging and difficult times of our life to kind of take us to the point where we began to see, can, what, is, what is it like to live out there? And, what, and can God sustain you and help you and, and, and help you make a difference out there? 
And so as I began to think about this time here, and we've got, you know, we've got one daughter that just graduated from college, we've got two that are a little older, sometimes I think, you know, what kind of a world has my generation given the young people of today to, to go into? And, um, and so that question is in my mind as, I, as I've thought about you all, as I've thought about my kids. And then in my current capacity as an advisor to about 50 companies, I deal not only with the executives, but I'm also involved in mentoring a number of, of young 20-somethings that as a part of, part of, a, part of a, a, a project and part of just my own conviction to minister and to develop the youngest of our, of our companies that I interact daily with very young professionals, 22, 26 years old, you know? And, 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 and so some of the things that I'm thinking about is how do I prepare them for leadership? Some, most of them don't know the Lord, but how do I prepare them for the future, not only in their work, but in their family lives, in their marriages, in other aspects of their life? And so as I thought about who could we talk about, that my namesake, Daniel, came to my mind. Mainly because, as we'll see, that there was probably no more, uh, uh, there was probably no other character in the scriptures in my mind that lived in a day like ours than Daniel. And in that short book, which is breathtaking in scope, it takes you all the way back to the foundations of Jerusalem and to the end of the times. And everything that God is doing intersects in the life of this man. And to understand what it means to live a life, of, a life of influence, Daniel has a lot of lessons to share with us. And as Patricia and I have talked, and I've told Neil, there's so much here that there's just no way we would have the time to talk about it. And I'm just praying that God will give us an opportunity to talk and, and, and say the things that will be helpful to us all here today. What's hard about reading the scriptures a lot of times is it's hard about reading history. You know. Uh, I just took, uh, in the fall, a group of 120 executives to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, um, Gettysburg was, was considered the, the, the pivotal battle in the civil, American Civil War. And you know, if you read a book, you kind of get a perspective that's like this, as you're reading the page by page, word by word. Or you, read a, you look at a movie and you kind of get a view like this. But when you take people who've done the reading who've done some of the background work, and then you stand on the ground, and you begin to see the scope of the battle, and the terrain, and really what happened. And then you begin to think, how do they make that decision? Why did they make that decision? How do they have the courage to respond to that? It was, it was an unbelievably moving experience. And, and to kind of finalize the battle there, and to, and to walk across the final field of battle with these men, it was, it was amazing to just look across and see tears streaming down their eyes as they began to understand what it was really like to be there. And so what we hope for is that you not only get principles and understanding and things like this from Daniel, but that you learn in the process to read the scriptures a little bit more closely to the ground where people lived and to kind of look into people's lives and identify with their lives so that when you read the scriptures, the words are not kind of out here, kind of on a wall, you know, where you're kind of sitting back and observing them, but that you're really taking in the scriptures and really understanding where the people are. 
And I think that what will happen is that we'll avoid a view of history that's like this, that's kind of summarized at 140 characters, you know, for the book of Daniel, <laughs> right? And that's kind of the way our world is operating right now, and it lacks the depth to get inside the heart and life of a person and really understand what God might be doing. So tonight what I want to do is I want to kind of give us the backdrop to Daniel's life. And then each session that Patricia and I will be sharing, what we want to do is kind of dig into the different dimensions of it so that you can identify with Daniel and his life more and that maybe it will stimulate you to greater thought and study and reflection on the scriptures yourself uh, in the life of Daniel and in the life of other biblical characters. Daniel his life came to light in, in the time of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the second son of Josiah. King Josiah was a good king, and, 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 and I think most notable was the fact that he led the nation in a revival. There was a period of time where the scriptures were absolutely lost to the nation, if you can imagine that. And then some priests were kind of rummaging around kind of in the basement one day, and they find these scrolls, and, and they bring him to, jo to Josiah, and it's like, these are the words of God. And, and, and he reads them, and there's a revival. But you just a short generation later, the nation has already lost it, and Patricia is going to go more into this tomorrow. Jehoiakim himself was a king that was self-indulgent, that had an unbelievable lifestyle at the expense of the people. And, um, and what was happening was that at that time, he was a vassal king of Babylon. And so he was under, they, they, were, they were subordinated to Babylon. And Babylon was off in a battle against Egypt as they tried to extend their empire. And the battle wasn't going well. And it was very costly. And Jehoiakim thought, OK, I'm going to use this opportunity when Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar seems distracted, they seem weakened, to rebel and try to withdraw from this servitude. Nebuchadnezzar responded, and you think about this in a political way, he didn't have the army, but he didn't, he didn't have the forces to commit to just kind of going in and leveling them. But what he did was that he set up a siege and built towers around the city of Jerusalem, and he said, we're gonna, what we're going to do is bring a siege against the city and begin to starve them out. Now, you know, Daniel at this time is about maybe 13 years old, middle school age. What do, you think, what do you think that he really understood of the political machinations of what was going on? Maybe he heard something, you know, in the marketplace. But do you think his friends were talking about Jehoiakim and the quality of Jehoiakim's political leadership and what was going on with Babylon or anything else like this? Probably not, you know? I mean, if you're sharp, you're aware of it, but... At the same time, it probably wasn't the thing that they were talking about. They were making preparations for life, going to school, you know, interacting with their friends, learning a trade, whatever it was. Daniel was born into probably a noble or an affluent family, highly educated, you know, private school probably, you know, whatever else. I mean, he was living a good life. He was a good-looking guy, athletic, intelligent, you know, good home. I know, just like you, right? <laughs> and then the siege begins. And this siege went on for 18 months. And so between the time he's 13 and maybe 15 years old, 
the siege is going on. And if you're thinking about it, what do you think, what do you think is happening in his little world? As he's out in the marketplace, what is he hearing the men talking about, do you think? Just give me a guess. What do you think? And what are the men talking about as he's walking around the marketplace? As he's listening to his father talk with the neighbors, other members of the community, what do you think they're talking about? What's that? Their life, right? Yeah. No food, right? Probably criticizing the political leadership, you know? Criticizing the sorry state of the country, you know, and the moral cu culture of the country that had got them to this point. What do you think the mothers are talking about? Safety, Safety right? You know, kids are getting hungry. What are you doing with, what, you know, what do you do with the little kids over 18 months as, the, as you can't get out of the city? And, 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 you're, and you're slowly starving to death. And you know, what's the point of schooling? You know, and all of these other things. Daniel, by this time, too, is maybe, as he's approaching 14, 15 years old, typically, probably, in Jewish culture, it was also the time, probably, where he was betrothed to somebody. So he had a sweetheart, probably. And he'd gone from now having a future to wondering, what's, what's going to happen to me? And so, you know, you think, you know, you think of the, the arguments in the, in the marketplace, and what do you think Daniel and his friends were now talking about? They were now talking about this, weren't they? Because it was affecting them directly. And they were wondering whether they were going to survive, what life was going to be like, you know? Well, the siege ended badly. Jerusalem surrendered. And what happened then was that Nebuchadnezzar took, they went through a winnowing and kind of a, a selection process and selected out about 100, a little over 100 young men from the city of Jerusalem. And the scriptures talk about, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but they were intelligent, they were good looking, they were strong in physical appearance, they were gifted, they were educated, and what they did was that they selected these young men off, and then they, they, they force marched them to Babylon. It was a 900-mile march that took maybe four months to take. Now, there were probably three reasons that these, these, these young men were taken captive. Here you are, 15 years old, you know, maybe a sophomore in high school. Think about this. You know, it wasn't that long ago you guys were sophomores in high school. And one, it was, it was the custom of, of, a, of a conquering king like that to take hostages, to kind of tampen any other thoughts about rebellion. Second, it was, it was a custom of the king to bring these hostages back and parade them through the streets of his own capital city, of Babylon, as trophies of his power and his conquest. And third, the idea then was to indoctrinate them, assimilate them, educate them, subordinate them, so that they could then be used as emissaries, ambassadors, administrators back to their lands. And now be kind of his inside men, so to speak, in ruling over the nation that he had he'd conquered. 
And so you think about this, you know, on this journey, they had to kind of go north and pick up the Euphrates River and come down because to go direct line would have gone through the desert. So put yourself in, in the shoes of these young men. Some of them probably died on the journey. Others were probably so weakened that they were carried along in the journey. And you go, you know, as you're thinking about this, you've gone from having these conversations while the city is under siege to now marching day after day for four months under guard, probably brutally. And what are you thinking to yourself? What are your conversations like now with those? If you could even talk hardly. And so after this march, and again, think about just this, a bunch of 15-year-old boys, they conclude this march, and then on the horizon, they see this city looming, and they see Babylon, the most architecturally marvelous, stunning, technologically forward, you know, most advanced city in the world, a population of over a million people. Now, you've known Jerusalem all your life, but Jerusalem was already past its prime from, from the days of Solomon. And so here you are marching this slave, and then you see this stunning city. And as you're marched through the gates, the crowds on either side have lined up to cheer the king and jeer you. How are you feeling as a young boy walking through here? And then you begin to look around, and you're just, you're just overwhelmed by what you see, don't you? And you begin to look around, and you see the ziggurat that Nebuchadnezzar is constructing, a reconstruction of the Tower of Babel, to once again kind of show his dominance over mankind and his, and his preeminence over mankind. You go a little further, and you see one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, constructed for Nebuchadnezzar's mistress to make her feel more at home. You know? And so how big, how strong, how prepared, how ready are you as a 15-year-old boy to walk through those gates into that situation? And I, I, I can't dramatize that enough because what I want us to understand in many ways what we are called to do in our world today is to walk into Babylon. Daniel knew that there was no going back. Daniel knew that whether he lived long or not very long at all, that as he walked in these gates, that was going to be his life. And how do you process all of that? You know, what does it mean to go in there? He can't hide. He couldn't go find a Christian ghetto to hang out in and kind of stay safe. He was totally, he was totally exposed and vulnerable in this situation. So in order to unpack this a little bit more, I want us to understand a little bit more about Babylon because 
Next to Jerusalem, Babylon is the most mentioned city in the scriptures, mentioned over 260 times in the scriptures. And Babylon is not just about a city in Daniel's day. Babylon is really about the spirit of the world in which we enter. The roots of it are from the Tower of Babel. And the end of it we see in Revelation 17 and 18, where there's a judgment on the great Babylon. The Tower of Babel, um, Babylon itself, the initial city of Babylon, was built by a guy named Nimrod. Nimrod was a son of Cush. And his name literally means he who revolts or rebels. And the scriptures say he was a mighty hunter and a man of force. And that's the spirit of the empire that he made. He was also the founder of the city of Nineveh, which became the capital of Assyria, another one of the kingdoms that was at war with God through the scriptures. And so from this one man, and you look at his name, and you look at what the scriptures describe him at, is that you see a spirit of rebellion against God, a, a place of revolt, a place that uses force to coerce people, and it's, it's tyrannical at its heart. And so when, when Babel was being built, what was the purpose of Babel? Well, the scriptures say that the, the, that the builder said, let us make a name for ourselves, which was the essence of pride. And what they were trying to do was create a place that would reach into the heavens because in the ancient minds, heaven was somewhere up there in the sky. And so they thought that if they could build a tower that would reach into the sky, that they would exert their dominion not only over heaven, but over earth also. And so that there was a spirit of kind of conquering and dominating humankind that was in this through power and pride. And, and so they said, we're going to make ourselves a great name. And yet the scriptures are just the opposite because in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And you see these contrasts between Jerusalem and, and God's followers and the scriptures throughout. And ultimately, this spirit of Babel has never gone away and eventually will come to play in Revelation 17 and 18 in what, what the scriptures call Babylon the Great. And you're going to see in Babylon the Great three things. There's a judgment on the religious Babylon. And it's interesting here, and there's going to be a, a, a judgment on the political Babylon, the kings of the earth, and there's going to be a judgment on the commercial Babylon, the merchants of the earth. But what's, what's most interesting to me is that the merchants, the commercial Babylon, and the, and the political Babylon will be subservient to the religious Babylon. Because ultimately, the scriptures say that what mankind will reach out to is a religious solution to the world's problems and subordinate the governments and all the commercial and the economic activity to that. And you think about what's going on in our world right now in terms of the spirit and the interaction between the political, the economic, and the religious spheres of the world. And you think, how is that going to play out? We see here in this, in this chapter here. So understand, when you graduate and you go into the world, you're not stepping out into a world that's left and right. You're not stepping out into a world that's liberal and conservative, Democrat or Republican. 
socialists or capitalists, you know, atheists or otherwise religious. We are stepping out into the world, into the spirit of Babylon. And if we, if we think that our position in the world can be defined by one of these other things, we'll be captured by the spirit of Babylon rather than, rather than understanding how to stand against it. So what I want to do here is just um, to, to help you understand that this, what we're stepping out into when, this, when the New Testament calls it the world, you know, the world system and the world, what we're talking about is, is Babylon, the spirit of Babylon. And it's not just ancient history and there's, a, you know, this place of ruins in the desert somewhere in Iraq. It is, it is a real and existing spirit that's seeking to dominate our world. And I don't care what society, what country you live in, this spirit is at work in different ways and will come together ultimately in revolt against God. So what's the strategy of Babylon then? How is, how is Babylon trying to capture us? And this is where we'll go. And if you'll open up to uh, Daniel chapter 1, we'll start there. And tonight, I want to just talk about Babylon's strategy. Tomorrow morning, Patricia's going to talk about Jeremiah's message to Daniel before they went off into captivity. And then I'm going to come back and talk about Daniel himself as an individual, how he stood in the midst of Babylon. And then in the fourth session, we'll talk about Daniel's impact on a single world leader and that world leader's journey to Christ. And then we'll bring it back out and say, what's the arc of Daniel's history? Because if you think about Daniel, you think about a couple of things like that tweet earlier, right? But Daniel, we see him at, at age 15 at the, in the first chapter. And by the end of the chapters, he's, he's, he's in his mid-80s. He goes into the lion's den, and everybody always portrays a young man going into the lion's den. He was past 80 when he went into the lion's den. He'd been walking with God for 70 years, and he was still being challenged. And so how do you last for a lifetime in terms of faithful walking with God? That's what we want to unpack here as we think about the scriptures. So let's talk about the Babylon strategy here. And then the first thing we see here is that Daniel points out in the, in, the, in the second chapter, I mean, in the second verse of the first chapter, that the vessels in the treasury, that, that Babylon had acquired and taken the vessels out of the temple and brought them into Nebuchadnezzar's treasury. We know from Ezra, because of what was returned back to Jerusalem later, that something like 5,400 pieces of, the, of, of treasure and vessels from the temple had come out to Babylon. And they went into Nebuchadnezzar's treasury. And this was predicted. This was prophesied in Isaiah 39, you know, uh, when um, Hezekiah was told that this would happen because of his disobedience to God. And what this meant was that these, these treasures were brought into something like a, what amounted to like a museum. And, this, and, and, and so then all of these treasures were put into these museum, and, and they took their place in the exhibit alongside the artifacts from all the other religions of all of the other nations that were conquered by Babylon. And what this does, what this did was put God on a shelf 
among all the other gods in a city that was populated by a thousand idols. And what, what, what the spirit of Babylon tries to do is it tries to reduce God down to size, minimize, diminish God, and make him relative. Look, there's your God, there's your God, there's your God, there's your God. And so what I want you to do, just at, around uh, in two, groups of twos and threes here again, is how does our world work to diminish God and make him irrelevant? You believe he's not, but do you feel that pressure? Do you feel that spirit against you in the world of trying to make God small, irrelevant, put him on the shelf alongside all the other gods? How do you see that? Why don't you just discuss that among yourselves here for a minute? All right, let me, get, let me get some feedback here. What are some things that you've experienced or observed about how, how the world around you tries to make God irrelevant, little? What do you think? Glorify sin. What's that? Glorify sin. Glorify sin, okay, all right. How does that diminish God? Choosing God over the sin hardest. Okay. Okay, and then the other part of that, though, is I think what it does is that it makes God's sacrifice and what God says about sin irrelevant, doesn't it? As if, like, well, what's the big deal, you know? This is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. yeah, what else? Yeah. Uh, the world puts more of a focus on us as people, and so that, you know, being prone to wander away from God, they try and, you know, take us away from God and then keep us away from God. Okay. Okay, okay, yeah, up there. Feeding our flesh, not our spirit. Okay, so all right. That it's like we seem like, sec, like partake in all the secular things, such as like parties and things like that. It makes it harder to come to God and really understand Him because we're just so focused on these other worldly things. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you think about it. You could talk about God, 
if, if God is kind of like this kind of, well, okay, everybody knows there's some sort of God-like force out there. Or they'll say, oh, you know, you look at nature, oh, you know, and goodness and beauty, there's got to be a God. Or, you know, oh, you know, there's a life force or an energy that all of us have that we need to tap into and that we all share. You know, and all of these things kind of make God smaller rather than kind of this God who is most high and can confront us, right, on these things. Yes, sir? What's that? Okay. Okay, so it's like, okay, here's God. This, there's, here, there's a shelf for this God, <laughs> and there's a shelf for this God, right? And there's a shelf for this God, right? Like in, like in the treasury. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just in science, you know. I, I, you see it, you see it in, in, so many, in, in so many sciences of different, you know, uh, or different fields where you remove God from the equation because he's not relevant to this. God belongs in this box over here, on this shelf over here. One more. Yeah. Good, good. Well, this is good. What I want you to do is I want you to be thinking about these strategies because th they're going to hit you. You know, you think about that, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but you think about Daniel walking into this situation. I mean, Jerusalem wasn't great from a spiritual standpoint. That's why they were under judgment. But then to walk into Babylon and then be assaulted by these things is unbelievable for a young boy. Unbelievable. So that's the first step of the strategy is that you'll see in the world that you're going to face it in every, every walk of life is this, ability, this, this strategy to diminish God and make him irrelevant in our lives. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are there places in our lives where we say, okay, God's okay here, but over here God's irrelevant or God's really small? Are we making him irrelevant in parts of our lives? Have we diminished his presence in different part, categories of our heart? You know, and to the extent that you have, that's the extent to which the spirit of Babylon is beginning to grab your heart. The second strategy of Babylon is to isolate his followers and discourage them. Here's Daniel, separated from his land, from his family, from his friends. It also implies here, and Isaiah prophesied it, that these hundred boys or so were castrated and made into eunuchs. So through this sexual abuse, they were separated even, even, in, even, even at that level from their future and the kinds of relationships that they could have and what kind of future that they could have, isolating them even more and, by, and committing them totally to serve none other than the king of Babylon. How is any other relationship possible when you go through that? And so the level of separation, isolation, and abuse that these young men faced is unbelievable. So let me ask you this then. In what ways, 
and discuss this among yourself. In what ways does the world work to isolate you and discourage you? I mean, right now, you know, you're among friends here, you know. But, you know, there's still times when you feel isolated, don't you, on your campuses. And, I, and I've seen it with my kids as they go off into the world, and all of a sudden, they don't have this. And it's like, I don't have a friend. I got the people that I just started working with, you know, but I don't know anybody else, you know. So think about this for a second. In what ways is the world trying to isolate you and discourage you? All right, let me come back here with you. Talk to me. What ways, what ways do you, have you observed that the world tries to isolate you and discourage you? Christians tend to be targeted by the, the public media and the problems with a lot of our, as being the fault for lots of problems in our nation. So. Okay, so yeah, so there's a lot of focus on targeting and isolating Christians. You're the problem in this world, et cetera, right? Okay. Okay, okay. So you, you can isolate yourself in career path. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. There's that spirit of self-reliance, right? And, 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 and you make a good point here, too, is that sometimes we don't even need the world to do this. We do this ourselves. You know, in what ways do you isolate yourself and avoid authentic community, authentic vulnerability and in interaction with people, letting people into your lives, being available for other people's lives? You know, to the extent that that spirit's not there in you, you've fallen right into this trap, haven't you? Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, the world kind of has a 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're kind of boring to talk about stuff like that, right? I mean, don't you have anything more relevant or interesting or, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. So will these like struggles as um, God isn't really around to actually save you, mm -hmm. he doesn't want to save you because you're going through this long string of, you know, struggles and hurt, so why hasn't he saved you as yet? Okay. And so they're, they're, they're trying to communicate to you that God's forgotten your zip code. He doesn't know who you are, you know, or what's going, or he's, a, he's given up on you, right? So, yeah, so that's the second part is this isolation, discouragement. Could, could Daniel have been isolated? Was Daniel isolated? Sure. Could he have been pretty discouraged at this point in time coming through the gates of Babylon? You better believe it. That was brutal. You know, and, you and when you think about how fragile young people are, especially, you know, teenagers, you know, of, of that age. And, and you think about the incidents of, you know, kids that are freshmen, sophomores, in high school taking their lives nowadays. The vulnerability of, of an age group, you know, they couldn't be of men more vulnerable than at this age here. Not, that, not to say that this, this age and the time didn't produce stronger or weaker people, but it's still, it's, as a young person, you think about the vulnerability that lies behind isolation. The third strategy for Babylon was to indoctrinate the followers and conform their thinking to Babylon. And so when you look here, then in the, in the fourth verse, it says, youth with, uh, without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so what their education really formed was they, they learned the language of the Chaldeans, which was going to be necessary if they were going to serve in the king's court. They had to learn the language of the nation that they were in. They were going to learn culture. They were going to learn art, architecture, the laws of the land, administration, history. Because they were being prepared to be representatives of their nation. And so in a sense, they were getting kind of like an MBA in Babylonian government and culture. And, and, and as such, you know, it was, it was the top education that the world could give. And so they, 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 they had taken precocious young boys and said, okay, now we're going to kind of kick it up a notch here in terms of your education and give you the best of the world's knowledge. But along with that, they were going to learn things like astrology, divination, magic, and the religious practices. They were going to learn how to tell the future by reading the entrails of animals that have been gutted and sacrificed. And so they, they, were, going to be, they were going to be exposed to unbelievable things. Some, we would say, is probably okay, good. You know, I mean... What would be wrong about learning about architecture, you know, or administration? But then there was a mixed bag because all of this was interspersed with all of this other stuff of the culture and values. And I think like your education, most things are a mixture, aren't they, in terms of what you're learning? But the thrust of this, though, was to make Daniel and his cohorts into Babylonians and into, into, into successful Babylonians 
who could represent Babylon to the world and be held up as models of Babylonian culture and power. So let me ask you this question then, as I would like just discuss this. In what ways do you see the world trying to conform your thinking to its worldview? Okay, go to it. All right, give me some feedback here. What do you see? This one's probably pretty alive, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, okay, you heard that? By presenting ideology as scientific fact, what else? Yes, sir. Okay. 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 It's shaping your view of what what your life should be like. Sure. Yes, sir. Okay. 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 Great. The, me uh, the media, um, all the sources, the entertainment, most entertainment is kind of pointing towards a, a certain worldview, uh, and then news media, social media, most media is kind of trying to steer you. Okay. Okay, so there's kind of a push by media. What else beside the room here? Yeah. A refusal to uh, allow absolute statement. An absolute statement of not allowing absolute statement. Okay. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Right, and it's hard. I mean, we don't, we, you know, it's not to say have a bad attitude, right? <laughs> but, but you're right, but, there, but, there, but, there's, a, but there's, there, there's, there's a side to that that, that leaves out God in there, in the spirit of God. So what else? These are good. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'd like to talk to those professors, but uh, <laughs> yes. I think the world sometimes takes this Christian idea and tries to adapt them to the world view. So you have a basis on Christianity, but you also have a basis on like, oh, well, people are not okay with this, or won't uh, look at this to this, or look at this this way, and try to make it more like world friendly. Okay. Do you feel, do you see that then in terms of the way the Christian community in this country is going? is that it's becoming more world friendly and without almost realizing what's happening to it, it's, be, it's, it's, more, it's more worldly than it's ever been. That, that's the danger of kind of having a sense of trying to be relevant. So what are the thoughts here? What, yes? Right. Yeah. Uh, the way I see it is when someone says, oh, that's normal, it's too bad. And if we keep holding to that, like, I feel like that's a way of saying it's still world friendly, like the way they're trying to say it. Okay. So the lights, the alarm bells start flashing. <laughs> yeah. 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 There, I mean, there's, there's so many, there's, so, there's such a range here. But what I'm asking you again here is that it, it is going to take an unbelievable amount of prayerful discernment on our parts to understand the places in our hearts that have been infected already that are not being examined anymore. And, and, and to the extent that those things are not examined and rooted out, and God is going to point to put his finger on these things in your life, that you'll have succumbed to strategy number three, which is the conformity of your views and your thinking and your philosophy and your approach to life coming out of the world, coming out of Babylon, rather than coming out of the scriptures. The fourth strategy, second to last strategy, is to compromise his followers at the level of their core convictions. One of the things that's interesting here is says that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank and Daniel, the rest of the chapter really talks about Daniel's decision and as well as with his three compatriots to not eat the king's food. Now, it, it was a dangerous decision to make um, because basically they would have been run out of the program or executed, who knows. And, um, but they appealed to God and they appealed to uh, his, his immediate captors you know, to kind of uh, uh, to pursue a different dietary regimen that, that proved successful. But I think one of the things that 
you think is why, why did he do this? Well, I think that within Daniel, he realized that, you know, that he was, this was a crossroads issue. There wasn't much that he could do about the education. There wasn't anything that he could do about the fi fact that he was isolated. There wasn't anything he could do, as we'll later see, about, about the fact that they called him a different name. But why, why, did, he, why did he refuse this? Well, we're, we're going to see a couple of things here. One is that you know, there was probably food that was sacrificed to idols. And, and there was a specific uh, biblical um, prohibition against that. And it was a result of that that Jerusalem and Judah were judged because they had broken that prohibition. The second part of it, too, though, was you think about these boys. This happens almost immediately after they come into Babylon. It wasn't like he had a big lead up to think about how he was going to do this. You've been on starvation rations since, before the, since the siege, and then on a forced march of four months, and then they bring you in to the banquet table. All of the delicacies, the finest food that the empire could have, the finest food that was given to the king, and said, have at it, boys. You know, I can see, I, I can see some of you guys at that table. <laughs> I saw you tonight, that's why. <laughs> But the idea, though, that, you know, and, but, but, Daniel, but Daniel took a stand here, not only because maybe of that, but because I think at this one point in time, it was a battle that nobody else saw, which was, which was do, I, do I beholden myself to the world and become dependent upon it, or do I stay trusting in God on a daily basis? And I think that every one of us in private ways, because nobody else knew this struggle. It wasn't like it was they, they kind of had him sign up some sort of dietary checklist of, you know, of his dietary preferences or something like that. It was something that was his battle, and he knew that in order to stand in Babylon, he had to fight this battle in which a line ran down through the core of his being, which was a conviction to follow God or to compromise in the world. And, and we all have private tests like this. And so on a daily basis, you know, where do you feel the greatest vulnerability to compromise or accommodate? And nobody else knows it except you know it in your heart. Where do you feel tested while it seems those around you are enjoying the meal? So what I'd like for you to do just again, at your, can your groups is saying, you know, let's be honest. Let's be, let's be vulnerable and authentic with each other. Where do you find that in terms of your own inner life, you're finding this line where nobody else may know it, and I'm asking you to take a risk here, but there's a daily test, because meals are daily, aren't they? To compromise or just to stay true to your convictions. All right? Let's just think about that for a second. Can you think of it? Can you put your finger on those things? And so part of being living in the world is understanding that even though nobody sees it, you know whether you're winning or losing the battle, whether you're compromising or staying true.
and in your heart. And it's on little things like that that maybe everybody else seems to be getting away with enjoying, but you can't. Then the last strategy, really, is a crisis of identity. The idea here is to make his followers identify themselves with Babylon. And the question is, and it's, and it's, a, it's a tremendous question in our age, isn't it, in terms of identity? You know, who are you? Who am I? When you look at the names, the Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their names in Hebrew went, God is my judge. Yahweh is gracious. Who is what God is? Yahweh has helped. The names of those four men. The Babylonians gave them new names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May Bel protect his life. The command of Aku, which was like the second most powerful god in the Babylonian pantheon. Who is what Aku is? Servant of Nebo, another name for Bel. And so you see how they were trying to immerse the very identity of these young people into the other culture. And so when you're thinking about it, in what ways do you feel that the world is changing your identity? What do those around you call you? At your core, who are you? Who do you identify with? When you think of who you are, what is the name that you call yourself? What is the name that God calls you? So let me just ask you just to discuss this top question. In what ways do you feel that the world is challenging your identity today? Just discuss that among yourselves. All right, let me, let me hear from you. What do you think? Well, how is the world challenging your identity? Yeah. 
academic, then religion's kind of beneath you. You okay? And so, like, a lot of times, like, in my, because I take a lot of uh, courses and that kind of thing, um, when we talk about religion, it's kind of talked about as something people that don't have as good of an education do. Okay. Because you're, I'm smart and all the stuff that I don't need religion. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, the, your appearance, the things that you do, your activities, there's the label, right. Okay, what else? Yeah. I feel like uh, when you were Christ before, as for religion, like conviction, and there was a comment earlier that like society kind of hates absolutes, and you're really against that. I feel like you're kind of found with like conviction and religion. Right, right. Other thoughts? Okay. 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 There's a comment over here. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it hard? I mean, it, it's so, isn't it in some ways so much easier to listen to what Babylon is calling you than to, than to, and then to, and then to, then to grasp and believe what God has called you? To believe that name more than that name? And that was what was happening to Daniel and his friends. They were, they were, Babylon was trying to take the sense of who, what God had named them and what God was saying they were, and diminish that out of existence and create a whole new identity in Babylon. And you're going to find that pressure throughout the world, you know, and, and throughout your life. And, 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 it's, it's, and it's an unbelievably difficult thing for us who follow Christ to believe what God calls us. We struggle with that. We have a hard time standing in that. 
And that's, that's part of the strategy. And so what happens is that the pressures that are against us is to make God irrelevant, to isolate us, to indoctrinate us, to conform us, to compromise us, and to confuse us. And how effective is that strategy? Well, out of the four, out of the hundred or so that came, only four passed the test. And so I'm saying even in a room like this, over the course of our lives, it's going to be really hard to not be impacted and succumb to the strategies of Babylon. Why am I starting here at this level? Well, I want to go back to the Gettysburg battlefield. Because there were battles at an individual level. There were battles at the regimental level, at you know, core levels, the army levels. But one of the deciding things was that one side understood better the ground on which it stood when it went into battle. And so it knew how to fight. And I think one of the things that really concerns me about any generation of Christians is that we don't understand the ground on which we are called to fight so that we know how to fight, so that we know how we're going to be attacked. Sometimes we, 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 we have an adverse reaction to even thinking about these sorts of things because we've reduced our, our faith in Christ and our walk with Christ down to such a privatized level, we're like an individual soldier on a battlefield, not thinking about the bigger picture of what's happening. And so I wanted to start tonight by describing the ground that you're going to be stepping onto, which is going to be the battlefield of the rest of your lives. And to understand the strategy of the enemy as he tries to seize that ground and to destroy you because he's not here to make nice and play nice. And as, we, as you think about it, our conversations, you know, I want you to interact with each other about how, how, are these, how are these strategies affecting you right now? How are you holding up? What can you do better? And tomorrow morning as you're praying and spending time alone with the Lord, ask God to show where you might be vulnerable in terms of the attacks. And then as we unpack the next sessions, we'll talk about then how do you stand against these strategies at an individual level and as a, as a group. And Patricia and I'll share also from kind of our own experiences uh, as God has taken us through a lot of, uh, a lot of battles. And, uh, and we, we pray that uh, he'll uh, use these lessons and kind of give you a framework for standing fast and standing strong and, and running clear to the end. Father, thank you very much for just the opportunity tonight. Thank you that we have such an example as Daniel, a lonely but towering and pivotal figure in the scriptures, and how a young boy could stand in the face of the most powerful king of his time and in the midst of the most powerful civilization of his time. And not only stand, but to be probably the most influential figure of that time. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give us insight, that you would speak to our hearts. And, Father, that, again, as we said at the beginning, 
that you would help us all realize our twin callings, not only of your call to bring us to yourself, but your call to help us take our position in this world to serve you and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Give him a hand.